You're listening to Future X, brought to you by Future Design School. Today's topic is one that many of us have found ourselves debating, a topic that makes its way in and out of headlines. We're talking today about our planet. And today's expert has a really close relationship with our planet. And by close, I'm referring to the countless hours he spent living inside volcanoes and walking in places where no person has dared walk before. And he does all of this in an effort to better understand this planet and place we call home. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you our future. Our future. Our future. Our future. <clears throat> yes. It's really fascinating. I'm optimistic. I'm like, oh my god. That's a very, very real possibility. That's my vision for the future. I'm George Karunas, and I am explorer in residence for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. I document extreme forces of nature all around the world. What you're about to hear is my conversation with George as he shares his experiences and insight that are helping us to understand what our planet is trying to tell us and what it may look like in the future. I suppose I, as I was growing up, uh, I was one of those kids that was interested in science and nature and all those kind of things. Jacques Cousteau was one of my heroes back then. And when you think of the job description of being an explorer, sort of the kind of thing that you dream up when you're six or seven and then you forget about when you become 12 or 13 and and the hormones start to kick in and you start to think about real uh, real world things but i suppose i never grew out of that phase and as i got older that love of science and nature expanded with an interest in travel photography exploration and As I was working my regular job in my 20s as an engineer, I used to build recording studios for a living. I would take my vacation time and I would go pursue extreme weather because that was what I was really interested in. So I would chase storms and that's kind of how I got started in it. It was a hobby that eventually turned into a full-time, well, I'm sort of hesitant to call it a job. It's more of a lifestyle. Well, I I think that... um... I don't know if you can call it a job because I, I haven't ever seen a, a job posting anywhere that says now hiring explorer. <laughs> so so I guess, yeah, it'd be difficult to kind of call that a job. So really, what was your first your first storm that really got you hooked? Yeah, I've, I've really had to sort of carve out a niche for myself doing the odd things that I do. But the first major storm that really sunk that hook into me, so to speak was the first time I went tornado chasing in 1998. I had flown down to Oklahoma and met up with some experienced storm chasers who already knew what they were doing and teamed up with them for two weeks. They taught me how to read forecast maps, how to navigate around these storms. And towards the end of the trip, we hadn't been having a lot of success until this one day in north-central Oklahoma, near the town of Medford. There was a tornado that touched down. We could see it in the field beside us, this dusty, brown, ugly thing. And it started turning. It started coming towards where we were stopped on the side of the road. 
So we immediately had to turn around and blast out of the way of this thing. And in the process of doing that, our truck got stuck in the ditch temporarily, which, of course, heightens that whole sense of urgency. But we were able to get out of out of the way and the tornado crossed the road right where we had been stopped. And got some great imagery from that. And it just so happens that a National Geographic TV crew was was traveling with us at the time. So that whole event got captured for television. And it was my first tornado. So it was all these things sort of came together and lit that fire inside me. And that's that was the moment I knew that I wanted to keep on doing this and also expand into other realms as well. So essentially, you're like, I almost died. I want to do that again. <laughs> Well, I suppose if you want to word it that way, but I, I wouldn't say we, oh, you know, we wouldn't, we didn't almost die. We had a close brush with the tornado. You know, how, how bad could it be? Well, I could imagine how bad it could be. <laughs> I'm totally deluded, of course, as you can tell. The adrenaline in that situation just got to be off the charts. It certainly can be. And, and, and let me tell you, there's been many times in my career where I've had that incredible adrenaline rush, where I've had to dodge pieces of lava flying through the air from exploding volcanoes, or I've had to wrestle an anaconda in in South America, or uh, ended up you know, flying into the eye of Hurricane Ike with the Hurricane Hunters, or things like that. And yeah, you get that that adrenaline rush, but I don't seek that out specifically. What I try to do is document these extreme forces of nature. I hesitate to call them disasters because they only become disasters when they affect human populations. Otherwise, they're just nature trying to balance itself out. So these extreme forces of nature do, of course, provide an adrenaline rush, but I'm there more interested in documenting it, capturing the moment, and then sharing it with people so they can see what's really out there. So when those situations get more intense, I mean, how do you, how do you keep your composure and not not panic. Yeah, panic will kill you. Having fear is not a bad thing. People say, oh, you must be fearless. No, 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 that couldn't be any further from the truth. Fear is a tool that I use. If I become afraid in a situation, that's my brain telling me that we don't have control over what's going on and I need to take action. I need to either back off I need to check in with my teammates. I need to double check my equipment. I need to stop for a moment and just assess the situation. I need to do something. But fear is not something that should stop you dead in your tracks. You got to you have to make sure that you don't cross that line into panic because panic is when the irrational behavior will kick in and that will get you that'll that'll get you killed. So by spending a lot of time in these situations and by preparing as much as I can ahead of time, by working with really good people, by doing research and study and practice ahead of time, you can become much more comfortable in these stressful situations. If you were to put me behind the controls of a 747, I would panic and I would crash it and I would kill myself and everyone on the plane. But the pilot who has years of experience can practically do it in their sleep. Hopefully not literally in their sleep, right? Because of that experience, knowledge, and training. So where where do you go then to get the experience, knowledge, and training as an explorer? Because it seems like those situations are already 
those elevated situations, how do you kind of gradually get the experience to be able to adapt to any of those situations? Yeah, it can be difficult, uh, especially when you're doing things that you've never done before. And even more difficult when you're doing things that no one has ever done before. And I do a lot of those type of things, a lot of world's firsts. Uh, for example, I led a an expedition for National Geographic a few years ago to the nation of Turkmenistan. Now, nobody nobody goes to Turkmenistan. North Korea gets three times the number of visitors per year. It's one of the former Soviet republics. It's it's very isolated. We were spied on the entire time that we were there. It's very much like uh, it's very much a dictatorship. And there's a flaming pit, 100 feet deep and 230 feet across, that uh, is a drilling rig for natural gas that collapsed back in the early 70s, leaking methane gas. They lit it on fire, thinking that it would burn off in a few days. And it's still burning today. The locals call it the doorway to hell. And so my mission was to go there, become the very first person to ever set foot at the bottom amongst the flames at the bottom of this inferno, this pit, and gather soil samples looking for signs of life down there, any type of microscopic life. No one had ever done this before. So I had to start from from scratch, from, from zero. Well, not exactly from scratch, because I've done a lot of expeditions that go down inside the craters of active volcanoes. So I already had that kind of experience in my hip pocket. But I had to do uh, lots of training with all the ropes that we were setting up across the Alora Gorge here in Ontario. I did numerous tests with all of my heat-protective clothing, Kevlar uh, harness and special fire-resistant ropes. I actually even hired a stunt coordinator to literally light me on fire like a Hollywood stuntman so that I could become more familiar and more comfortable around the idea of being in close proximity to fire. So I've spent a small percentage of my life, actually literally we did two of, yeah, two burns for a total of one minute of my life, I have spent engulfed in flames on fire as preparation for this expedition. Well, now I can imagine the preparation itself is probably more intense and more involved than the actual, the actual task, right? Sometimes it is, and that's what you want, right? You, you want your training to be m as intense or more intense than the event that you do, right? That's why you see these, these uh, baseball players, they put a weight on their bat before they, before they go up to bat, right? So their bat is heavier. It's harder to swing that bat when they're warming up and practicing. Then they take it off, and suddenly it's easier to hit that ball. So do you lie awake at night sometimes just thinking of every possible scenario of every situation and, and try to kind of think about what the next step would be if you're in that situation? Yeah, and especially when you're in the moment. Like, for example, I was in Gulfport, Mississippi for Hurricane Katrina as that huge hurricane roared ashore. We were in the strongest part of that hurricane. And the night before, myself and about five other colleagues were sleeping in our cars in a steel-reinforced concrete parking garage, waiting for the storm to come. And we had no idea what the next 24 hours was going to be like. We didn't know if we were going to survive. We didn't know if the city around us was going to get shredded. It did. And the warnings coming from the National Weather Service 
were unbelievable. They were talking about tall buildings swaying to the point of collapse, um, suffering never seen before, and just complete devastation. Uh, refrigerators and small cars becoming deadly airborne missiles. So how do you prepare for that? <laughs> you just have to... Well, we were with good people. We had I had a good team of people that I was teamed up with, and we were in the only structure that we thought could survive. And the structure that we were in, it did survive quite well. So we took our knowledge and experience, but still, sleepless night, let me tell you. Oh, I can imagine. But that that's that's something I think that you said right there is you've got to surround yourself by a good team to to probably balance each other out in a way. Absolutely. And here's what I did when I was doing that fire pit expedition in Turkmenistan. I gave every member of my team, all my rope rigging crew, uh, my safety guy, all of us, I gave them the ability to call off the expedition, call off the descent at any time for any reason, if they felt it became too unsafe. So even if I became totally blinded with just the, the idea of pursuing this without regard for my own safety, they had the ability to call it off and haul me up uh, on the ropes, whether I wanted to or not, even though I was the expedition leader. So I surrendered that, uh, that ability to them just so that I could not become clouded by my own misjudgment. That's a really good idea. I think we could probably all learn something from maybe surrendering some control sometimes to get us ourselves out of some situations. Why is it important to do what you do? Why is it so important to get up and close and personal with the planet's most extreme conditions? Well, we were born explorers. We spend the early part of our lives learning about our environment. We're very curious about it. And for me, it's all about curiosity. Uh, I never sort of grew out of that. My curiosity is greater than my fear. That's the great tipping point there. Curiosity will draw you towards something. Fear will push you away from it. And I think the world could stand to be a little more curious about the world we live in. We have no planet B that we can leave Earth and go to. Uh, there are 7 billion people on planet Earth, and we still have lots of mysteries yet to unravel about the natural world. And if I can go to these places and document these parts of the world that are undergoing extreme transition, the places where the tornado is touching down or the hurricane's making landfall or the volcano is erupting and show people how powerful uh, the earth can be and what these forces can do, then hopefully the next time it happens, people will remember that and take appropriate action and evacuate or you know go to the basement if there's a tornado warning things like that and i also hope to inspire and influence the next generation of scientists and explorers who uh, will be the pioneers in the de decades to come the first person to set foot on mars is likely alive today we don't know who that person is yet. Probably some kid somewhere. But that person is probably alive today and is bound for greatness once they actually are able to have the technology to efficiently go to Mars and put boots on the ground. And that person will be just as inspiring as Neil Armstrong was 
back in the late 1960s. Wow, that's kind of, that's really interesting to think about, you know, over the next decade or two. I'm, I'm not a scientist by any means, but you, you hear things in the news that that's where things are going. Certainly for exploration, not necessarily colonization. The, the most harsh environments on the surface of planet Earth are still much more habitable than the best places on Mars. So we're really compelled to explore, but at the same time, we need to take care of our own home here because it is uh, far more important in terms of the survival of us as a species than colonizing Mars, at least for the next quite a few generations. Right. Yeah, that, I think that brings up really something interesting, a point that you make there that really it's more feasible for us to protect what we have than try and get everybody to pack up and move to another planet. Absolutely. Right? You've seen this planet top to bottom at its best and probably at its worst. So how would you rate or how would you define the current state of our planet? I've been very fortunate. In all of my travels, I've been able to travel to about 65 different countries, to all seven continents, from Greenland and the Canadian Arctic down to Antarctica, from the Sahara Desert to the South Pacific and every point in between. And I've seen firsthand already tremendous effects of pollution, of overpopulation, of climate change, uh, interviewing people in Bangladesh who have lost not only their houses, their homes, but their land no longer exists. I talked to people who pointed out into the sea saying, that's where my farm used to be. It's gone because the, the, the shoreline is disappearing. It's being eroded away. We were in Siberia interviewing permafrost scientists, and they are terribly worried about all the methane gas that's being released from the Arctic permafrost. And that methane, in some regards, can be up to 20 times more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And as the atmosphere gets warmer, more of that permafrost melts, releasing more methane, which causes the permafrost to melt, which releases more methane. You see where this is headed, right? So unfortunately, I've seen things that truly, truly terrify me all over the world. Is that all trending to more natural disasters? And where's the planet going? Is it getting more angry? <laughs> well, yeah, nice point. Of course, my TV show was Angry Planet. So I'm sort of a, an expert in the, the, the moods of Mother Nature, I suppose. And there are certain natural disasters that we are expecting to increase in the coming years. The extremes of temperature, for sure. We're expecting more heat waves. We're expecting more droughts and more floods in certain parts of the world. It's not so much that the entire planet is going to get warmer. Parts of it are going to get warmer. Parts of it are going to get colder. Uh, a lot of it is going to be the oceans getting warmer, which is going to lead to more coral bleaching. It's going to lead to uh, changes in species migration, changes in currents, uh, things like that. So, and those warmer oceans could contribute to stronger hurricanes as well, because hurricanes use the fuel of those warm oceans to power themselves. Uh, so we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we're quite certain that we're going to see a lot more of these extreme ends of the spectrum type events. Those one in 10 year events 
are going to become once a year events. So even if you say kind of the end of the spectrum, as far as rating, I mean, if, if hurricanes become more powerful, do we have to change the way we actually categorize those or rate those? Does that scale have to change? Uh, there was already some changes to the tornado scale not too long ago. Uh, that was more because of advances in, in the study of tornadoes. Uh, in Australia, a couple of years ago, they had a heat wave so bad that the meteorolog uh, meteorological department had to add a couple of extra colors to the scale for measuring temperature across Australia. So we were already seeing things like that happen. So would you say there's one region or one part of the planet that's most affected right now with the changing planet? Seeing the greatest changes in the polar regions, uh, the melting sea ice in the Arctic, and in Antarctica, that's where we're seeing the greatest um, upticks in temperature. And what happens is ice and snow is white. It reflects a lot of that sunlight back out into space. It's, it's the albedo, we call it, because of the, the bright color. It's like wearing a, a white t-shirt versus wearing a black t-shirt out on a summer day. You're gonna get hotter in a black t-shirt. Well, when that ice melts, you have now the sea surface exposed, and the water is much darker than the ice. So it's going to absorb even more heat, and that's going to melt more ice, which then causes it to heat even more. So it's, it's certainly a concern. This past year, there was a lot of issues with, with uh, ships trying to go through the Northwest Passage. There was a lot of ice piled up in certain places, and that's been a bit of an exception to the trend of the... Uh, Northwest Passage being open or ice free during the summertime, but one year does not a pattern make, right? So we're seeing lots of changes up there. Now, in terms of places that are heavily populated, it's the low-lying islands that I worry about. Places like Tuvalu, Kiribati, the Maldives. These are very low-lying island nations that contribute very little in terms of carbon footprint themselves but yet they are extremely susceptible to sea level rise. And you don't have to completely sink an island for it to become uninhabitable. All you need is for the water level to get high enough so that that salt water inundates the land and pollutes the fresh water supply. Now, suddenly, your island is unlivable because you don't have a fresh drinking water supply. And that's happening in places like Tuvalu. That's really an interesting thing to think about. It's impacting those who are probably contributing the least. Tremendously unfair. Yeah, it is tremendously unfair. You're, you're ab absolutely right. I feel guilty, you know, in a way. So it's like, what what can I do? So how do you inspire people to maybe start thinking differently? Do they have to, to see it firsthand? Is that the best way to do it? Or, or how do you get them to think a little bit differently about the plan? One really important thing that I'm seeing is a change in the way of thinking from generation to the next. Uh, the kids that are growing up now are extremely environmentally conscious. They're aware of these things. There are wonderful campaigns reducing plastic use and emissions reduction and, and the, the, the uh, propensity towards electric cars and things like that. So I, I'm already very hopeful for the upcoming generation, and they're going to be the ones that repeal the existing laws that are going to be changing, undoing the deeds that are being done currently by 
older politicians and lobby groups that may not have our future's best interest in mind, but rather go for the quick buck, which has been a huge problem. So as long as the younger generation doesn't get corrupted too much, I think we have a lot of hope. I would agree. I mean, a lot of the younger generation that I've been able to interact with, they're more aware and more concerned about it, which is gives you a lot of hope and, and to remain optimistic. What what questions do you think we still need to answer about our planet or about climate change? What, what's the big unknown? There's, there's so much. Uh, trying to predict the future, of course, is very difficult. Um, climate models, uh, these computer models that are being used to try and figure out how our temperatures are going to behave in the future, they're getting better every year because we're able to add more data into them. The way that these computer models work is they're only as good as the information that goes in. And the weather information that's being input into them now will help us better predict what the future climate is going to be like. Now, remember, people make this big mistake frequently, is that they make uh, no distinction between weather and climate. Weather is the day-to-day -day weather that we're used to, right? Climate is the average of your weather over time. So climate is what you expect. Weather is what you get. So if you go to Florida in August, you expect it to be hot and humid. That's the climate. But of course, that's going to change from day to day. That's weather. So I've seen so many examples of the ignorance of people saying, oh, it's snowing like crazy today. So much for global warming. Yeah, well, you're, you don't understand the difference between weather and climate. So our understanding of that's getting better. The earth that we live on, even with the seven and a half billion, whatever we're up to now at this point, I haven't checked in the past 10 minutes to know how many people there are on planet earth, but uh, there's still tremendous parts of it, especially the deep oceans that we have no idea what's down there. There's still a lot of, of uh, room for explorers and exploration on earth. Uh, even without leaving the confines of our planet and exploring space, there are still caves where no human has ever set foot. There's deep jungles where no human eyes have ever seen. And we've only explored a few small percentages of parts of the of the ocean, especially the deep oceans. So I, I find that really inspiring and exciting. And what I want to see moving forward is a planet where we can live sustainably in harmony with nature. And of course, that's difficult, uh, but that's that's my vision for the future. So do you ever get overwhelmed by thinking about all of those potential places and things that are left to explore? And and really, how do you how do you kind of choose your next destination or the next thing that that's on your list of, of things to do? See, I'm sitting here confident knowing that I will die never having been able to explore all the places I want to go because I will never be able to live long enough if I live to be 150. So I find that exciting. <laughs> the tricky part is trying to figure out what to do next and where to go next. And a lot of it depends on circumstance, uh, depends on who I'm working with and what kind of projects I have coming down the pipe, whether I'm working with a television production or whether I'm trying to uh, do a scientific expedition or whatnot. So in the next coming months, I'm going to be in Africa. Actually, I depart tomorrow for Africa. And then in November, I'm going to be uh, in Antarctica again. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then for next year, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. 
Well, I mean, that seems like a pretty full schedule at this point, and that'll give you some time to think about it. Do you have that one lingering thing that, that is just kind of like, is it time to go see this or go do that, that, that is always lingering in the back of your mind that you haven't got to yet? There's one place. My white whale, the splinter in my mind that I just can't get out. There's a volcano in Antarctica, not a part of Antarctica that I'm going to in November, a different part, uh, called Mount Erebus. And it's the southernmost active volcano in the world. And it has, inside the crater, a lake of boiling lava. There are about five places on planet Earth that have permanent boiling lakes of lava. I've been to four out of the five, and it's the last one on my list, but it's very difficult to get to. Yeah, I don't think there are a lot of flights into that area. Uh, so <laughs> a little bit of a trek. Now, is that something that's like highly elevated that makes it challenging? What's the most challenging to actually get to that? Getting there is difficult and expensive. Uh, the volcano is uh, it's tall, so there's uh, altitude issues. Obviously, the weather there is freezing, freezing cold. Um, the island is controlled by, uh, there's two bases there. There's an American base and a New Zealand base, uh, research facilities. So in order to basically do anything there, you have to go there with their permission. So securing that is difficult. And once you get all that done and you're standing at the summit, looking down into the crater, that lake of lava also has this tendency to burp and explode, chucking blobs of lava, sometimes up to the crater rim, randomly and without notice. So there's a whole laundry list of challenges with, with going there. It has been done. It wouldn't be a world's first, but I'm just dying to go there. But I do love doing world's firsts. We could probably talk all day about the adventures that you've had. As we wrap up a little bit, is there one recent adventure or exploration, or revelation that you had on an adventure that you'd like to share? Interesting one. Some people ask me, well, what do you, what do, you do for fun? What do you do on your vacation? And so last year, I went on vacation. I went mountain climbing in North Korea. And, and let me tell you, that was, it was quite the experience. It's a beautiful nation. The, the mountains and the forests in central North Korea are absolutely beautiful. And the people there are really not that much different than us. We all want to see our families do well. We want our families to be healthy and happy. We want our kids to have more than we had. Um, but it's the little things like the governments that, that really make North Korea have the reputation that it does. And let me just give you two quick examples. While I was there, they did a ballistic missile launch test. And I only found out because I turned on the television and I saw the video of the missile launch test from my hotel. And I'm thinking, oh, dear, is this going to be, is Trump about to start World War III now? Because this was long before they be, sort of became buddies. And uh, so that was disconcerting for sure. But then the other thing which really made me raise my eyebrow was how the children are, the only word I can use is indoctrinated. We were at the top of this mountain and there's a group of 20 or 30 small children, perhaps five, or, five years old. They were singing and dancing. There was a woman playing the accordion. The parents were there taking pictures. They saw us. They were gleeful to see us. They invited us over to get pictures with the kids. It was this really nice interaction. But then as we're walking away, 
the adults pull out these wooden cutouts that are painted to look like grotesque caricatures of U.S. Army soldiers. And they give the kids sticks, and the kids would run over and start bashing on these U.S. soldiers. And I'm like, oh, my God. that No wonder, you know, things are so uh, unusual there. No wonder they hate the West, because they're taught to hate the West for no other reason than they are just specifically taught to at such a young age. And I was very quick to point out, I'm from Canada. I'm not, I'm not American. <laughs> But they had no way of knowing that. But it was uh, it was just this one little m tiny moment of one trip in a, in 20 years of, of doing expeditions that really made me sort of open up my eyes really wide and see why things are the way they are in some places. Does that make you feel like maybe the future of really humanity or what might bring people together is actually the planet itself? that thing that we have in common? Is that possible? Really like to think so. It's one thing that we, like you say, we all have in common is this, this sphere that's blasting through space, orbiting a giant ball of nuclear fusion that none of us can really escape. And we are all responsible as stewards of our planet. We're all responsible for making this place that we live not only inhabitable, but to make it the wonder, to preserve it as the wonderland that it is, not just for the next generation, but for four, five, six, seven, ten generations from now. We all have to think, not about tomorrow, but what legacy are we leaving for seven generations from today? Really a lot to think about, and uh, I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your extremely busy schedule. I'm glad we caught you before your adventure to Africa and Antarctica. We definitely look forward to seeing you and hearing from you and your adventures in the future. Thanks for stepping out on the edge of things so we can learn more about our planet. We really appreciate that. Much my pleasure. Wow, what incredible insight from George today. Not only looking at the planet and the future of the planet, but some of the things that he said really can apply to all of us, even though we're not explorers and adventurers. I especially love what he said about fear, and that fear is not a bad thing, but can be used as a tool. That fear is our brain's way of telling us that we need to take action. We all often experience fear when we try new things, and we don't have to be on the edge of a volcano to experience that. But it's our ability to think critically and problem solve when that fear arises that ultimately decides our success and how we process failure. And I love what he said about curiosity as well, that it can be greater than our fear, and that curiosity will draw us to something while fear will drive us away. And as George said, we could all stand to be a little more curious. No matter where you stand on climate change and the future of our planet, it's a place we all call home. And we all probably want the best possible place to live. So as you move through the life in your part of the world, take a look around and recognize the things that make it great. And when it comes to protecting those things that make it the wonderland that it is, ask yourself, what will I do? A huge thank you to George Karunas for finding a moment in between adventures to share his experiences and insight into the future of our planet. We wish him all the best and look forward to following him on his next adventures to help us better understand this planet we call home. To follow George on all of his adventures, 
Be sure to follow him on Twitter at George Karunas, or check him out on his website at stormchaser.ca. Thank you for listening to FutureX powered by Future Design School. I'm Quinn Henderson. Coming up next time on FutureX, we sit down with Dr. Jennifer Gardy, a lover of disease. Well, not so much the diseases themselves, but the science behind how disease spreads and how the field of epidemiology is advancing to help us better prepare for and address future outbreaks. Ah, the future. <clears throat>